children, those who have received the handout for kids, the word to look out for is found. Okay, so found or find. Uh, count the number of times you hear that, please. Uh, and <clears throat> those of you who came expecting to hear Pastor Mpumalela, sorry. Uh, <laughs> if you get up and walk out now, that's very rude. Okay. <laughs> And we're just doing a standalone uh, this morning. We're going to look at uh, Luke chapter 15, probably the most famous parable in the Bible, the parable of the prodigal son as it's known. So let me read through it. So turn there to Luke chapter 15 from verse 11. This is what Luke writes. And he said, this is the Lord Jesus speaking, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, A severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost 
and is found. This is a reading of God's word. Well, let's just give the setting so we know where we are. Uh, give the context. So really, uh, we're jumping in in the middle of a sermon, actually. So uh, the whole chapter goes together. It's three parables that the Lord Jesus Christ gives. And the context is he's talking to the Pharisees primarily. So if you look at verse 1 of chapter 15, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. You see what's happening, that people are starting to respond to the teaching and preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, but they're not the religious people. They're the outcasts. Notice what he says, tax collectors and sinners. And tax collectors were really persona non grata because they were Jews who were, uh, had aligned themselves with the Roman Empire and said, we will, we will gather money from our own people and uh, give it to you. And they were often very corrupt uh, because they had to give a certain amount to Rome and whatever extra they got, they could keep. And so they took advantage of their own people. So they were really seen as traitors. They were not allowed into the temple to worship but these people are starting to listen to Jesus and the religious elite begin to grumble and they say, look at this, he, uh, he hangs around sinners. And so Jesus begins to give them uh, these three parables. And the first parable is the lost sheep, uh, then the lost coin, and then the lost so sons, really. There's two sons here that are lost. Um, some people have... Uh, looked at these three parables and they said one way that you can look at it is that uh, the lost sheep is lost because of its own stupidity. Okay, uh, if, you, if you're familiar with sheep, you know that they're not very clever, they're not the sharpest animals, not the sharpest pencils in the pencil box. Uh, goats are very clever and very streetwise, but sheep are, are pretty, pretty dumb. And they do dumb things, and so this sheep gets lost because of its own stupidity. And that's true of us. Uh, we, we are dumb when it comes to the things of God. We do stupid things, and we end up being lost. Uh, the lost coin, commentators have noted, you could look at it to say, well, it's lost because of that person. So really, in a sense, there's a lostness that also comes because of the influence of other people. This does not negate one's personal responsibility, but it would be uh, naive of us to not realize that other people also affect us negatively. And so uh, people can be lost because their parents never taught them the gospel. Or they, they taught them, but they were hypocrites. Um, my mom used to jokingly say, do what I say, not what I do. Okay. Uh, do what I tell you to do, not, you know, don't, don't look at how I actually live. And it was, she used it jokingly, she, she was not uh, like that. Um, but that is also true. Uh, many are lost because of the lies of others, the influence of their philosophy professors at university, or their parents, or school teachers, or friends. Uh, but here in this last parable, the first son, the youngest son, is lost because of his own wickedness, his own rebellion. He wants to do his own thing. 
And the oldest son is lost because of his pride and self-righteousness. And uh, the word lost is found eight times in this chapter, and the word found or find is also found eight times. And so that's really the main theme, this idea of lostness and then being found by the Lord Jesus Christ, being found by God. In this final parable, we have three characters that we're introduced to. It's a father and two sons, traditional sort of family setup. But the younger son wants to do his own thing. Uh, he, he, uh, he wants money so he can go and live his own life. And so he, you know, it seems that he sort of was fairly patient waiting for his father to die so he could get the inheritance. But after a while, you know, he just keeps on living. So he, he goes to his, <laughs> he goes to his, it's not actually even a funny point, I don't know. <laughs> As a father, I don't find it funny. <laughs> um, but he goes to his father and he says, look, uh, just give me what's coming to me now. Okay? Give me my inheritance now. I want it now. And in that culture, that is an incredibly shameful thing to ask. It's not a very nice thing to ask now, but in a shame-honor culture, which the ancient Near Eastern world was very much a shame-honor culture. We know that even today. I'm sure you hear of those honor killings when a daughter uh, rejects the, the faith of that area or marries a person from a different belief system and the family will gather and put that person to death even. Okay, so it's very much a shame on a culture. This would be a, a horrific way to treat the patriarch, the father. You're really saying, I want you to die. Uh, the audience would have expected a, maybe even a violent response from the father, hitting him through the face, kicking him out of the home. And the Pharisees would have nodded their heads. That's the right way to do it. Uh, show him who's boss. Don't let these youngsters talk to you like that. Okay? That's how you, they, would have, they would have seen it. We're used to this story, so we don't really maybe get the shock. Uh, but the father doesn't respond like that. And he, he divides up his living. And it's very interesting in the Greek, for the, the, there are two words used here for property. Um, the one word that's used is bios, where we get the word biology. Really his life. He divides up his life. Because remember, it's an agrarian culture. So your life was the land. Uh, you, you, that's what you lived off of. That was everything. The crops, every year, that was it. There were not ATMs. There were not banks where you could just go and, you, could, you know, you could just go to the bank and say, okay, I'm drawing one-third of my, you know, my wealth what I'm worth, and here it is in cash. He would actually have to go and sell off a third of his land. Okay. Tremendous cost to himself and his livelihood. He really, from his own life, his own livelihood, he gives to this ungrateful child. He gives this, this money to him. And within a few days, once he's got what he wanted, he leaves. He takes everything as a clean break. He goes away, we're told, to a far country. So as far away as he can get from his dad, uh, that's, 
you know, it's really, there's nowhere far enough away. He wants to do his own thing and live his own life. And uh, the Lord Jesus said he squandered his property, his, his livelihood, his money, his possessions, in reckless living or riotous living. Uh, the idea here is wasteful living, it's traditional immorality. Um, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That's what, you know, you could say that's what he just went and did. In fact, his older brother in verse 30 says, you know, he wasted his life with prostitutes. How can you, how can you welcome him back? Maybe this is you, especially with students. When you're away from home, uh, many of the students, you know, you, your, your family are not here in Johannesburg. They're in Limpopo or the Northwest. And so you're far away from the influence and restraints of your parents. And actually, it's something you've been looking forward to. I can't wait till I'm out of my parents' or grandmother's home and I can do whatever I want to do. I don't have to worry about them telling me to tidy my room. I don't have to worry about them telling me to come home at a certain time. I'm free to do all that I ever wanted to do. Willful rebellion. The most fundamental level, this first son, his sin is willful rebellion against his father, a dishonoring of his father. He doesn't honor him. He doesn't respect him. And maybe that's where you are. Now, the title for this sermon is two sons, the two sons. I was trying to think of another way. What I, my thinking is, these two sons represent all of us. Okay? You're either going to lean one way or another. You're either going to be more a younger son or an older son or a mixture. And one day you're more like the younger son, just traditional sin. And the next day you're more self-righteous, like a Pharisee. But don't sit and listen and think, oh, well, this is for unbelievers or something. This is true for those in the church, especially when we come to the older son. This is true for, for humanity. Whether you're visiting, whether you're not, you don't identify as a Christian, you're in these categories. If you are a Christian or are true a believer, you're still also tempted with these same things, and these things are in our hearts. And so you... You, may be, you don't like to be told what to do. You want to be free. You want to be like this younger son. You want to live your life. It's my life. Okay. I was going to look for the lyrics for the song, and then I thought, but that's really <laughs> old. Uh, probably most people won't even know that song. Like, <laughs> uh, but that's maybe how you think. It's my life. I will do with it what I want to do. It's not your life. Okay. God is in control. God gave you this gift. And he gives you a manual. He gave you his word. He says, this is how you live. I'm sovereign. I'm the king of the universe. I created you. You belong to me. By right of creation, you are mine. But he says, it's my life. I want to live the way I want to live. And he goes off and wastes his life. Reckless living. You can imagine he takes the good gifts God gives and he abuses them. He takes the gift of food, becomes a glutton, obsessed with the best of foods, not satisfied with simple food, overeats, overindulges. Okay. Maybe, maybe you think, oh, that's not a, really a big deal. Like that. Well, the reason for that is that it's a culturally acceptable sin. It's still a sin, though. 
Did you know that? Eating too much, wasting food, that's a sin. Okay. The Bible says it's better to take a knife and slit your throat than be a glutton. You know that? <laughs> okay. You take God's good gifts that he gives and you abuse it. No doubt he took alcohol, another good gift from God that God gives us to gladden our hearts. But not to escape reality and to um, shut everything down and become a fool. He takes it and he abuses it. He becomes a drunkard, stumbling around, falling into his own vomit. The total breakdown of what it means to be human and, and an image bearer of the glory of God. What about money? He has, he has money. Materialistic, greedy. Getting more and more stuff for the sake of it. I was listening to a a podcast recently, and um, this guy was saying that for, for millennia, most people on the planet only had a few possessions, okay. and that would just be passed down. You'd have a, you know, the family table in the home, and then that would just be passed down, and that was it. And he said something, I, hope, I don't want to mis, misquote it, but I think he said something now, the average person in the West as something like 10,000 objects. Okay. It was, we, and then we just want more and more and more. Okay, We're never satisfied. His brothers accused him of sleeping with prostitutes. No doubt that was part of his reckless living. Sexual immorality. Objectifying people and using them. Using their bodies for pleasure. No longer seeing them as people made in the image of God with value, but simply there to satisfy him. And that can work both ways. It's not just physical lust. It can be emotional to say, this person emotionally satisfies me. Okay. It's not the person that you love or care about. It's what they can do for you, how they make you feel. You use them as an object. There's other things we can abuse, all the good gifts God gives us, hobbies, sport, recreation. They become ultimate to us, they become our identity. Now we can tend to think that, well, it's not really a big deal. The big deal for God is, is self-righteousness. You know, this, you know, people sin and that's, it's, it's going to happen. Listen to what Paul says. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That can't characterize your life and you expect to inherit the kingdom of God. Okay? You're deceived. But then there's good news. Verse 11, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So whatever you've done, there is forgiveness, there is grace. You don't need to live with a sense of condemnation and guilt and failure over your head at all. You're washed. Paul was a murderer. Okay? But he's forgiven in, in Christ. Read through the Bible, see 
men and women who committed these sins and they're forgiven by God. Testimonies here of our sin and yet we're forgiven in Christ. There is hope and there is hope for this young man. Two things happen to him that bring him to, the, to his knees. Number one, he runs out of money. His own lifestyle ends up destroying him. And funnily enough, nobody helps him once he's run out of money. Okay? Fairweather friends. You heard that, that statement? When things are going well, suddenly you have lots of friends, don't you? When things fall apart for him, no one is there to help him. So through his own reckless living, destructive lifestyle, he is brought to his knees. On top of that, there is a, a natural disaster. Brought by the sovereign hand of God, a famine comes upon the land. Okay. And I'm sure many of us can testify that it often takes two, those two things to bring us to salvation, isn't that right? The effects of my own sin and then God sovereignly intervening. Something beyond your control. Read the testimonies of many believers and you will see some of them are caught up in, they're shipwrecked or a near collision, or something outside of their control that God uses to bring them to their senses. So praise God for those things. Okay? Praise God when he interacts, interacts in, in life and uses uh, events in life to bring you to your senses. Okay? He has to reach this place. Thomas Watson said, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Till sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Unless you feel your sin, well, then you don't have a need for a Savior. You might like the idea of Jesus and the, the Christian message, but you won't love Christ until you see how horrible and ugly sin is. He ends up feeding pigs, okay? Now, again, remember the context. That was anathema for a Jew, okay? The rabbis taught this, cursed is the man who would breed swine or pigs. Okay. It, was, it was a way of saying he had reached rock bottom, that he is now feeding these pigs. Remember what the scripture says, he, he, would, he even desired to eat their food. They got better food than him. See this monstrous picture of, humanity being, of his humanity being lost, that he becomes like an animal wanting to eat the the filth of these pigs. But that's what sin does. It dehumanizes us. Makes us in, like animals, like beasts. But in this state, he comes to his senses and he repents. And he prepares a speech. You see, repentance is not just a, a random thing or I'll just wait for it to fall on me until I've got this feeling. It takes work. It's hard. It's hard to repent. He has to think about it. Verse 18, he says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to arise and go to my father, and I'm going to say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. It's an incredible response. Okay? He first begins by acknowledging he sinned against God, first and foremost. I've sinned against heaven. You've got to start there. If you just think, well, I, you know, I've messed up, I've hurt a few people, 
it's not good, I'm going to repent. It's not enough. You and I have sinned against God, our Creator, who's given us every good thing, and we've thrown it back in His face. Remember what David does, Psalm 51. After all his sin, all the people he's hurt, he says to the Lord, against you and you only have I done this evil. He realizes that sin is primarily against God. But he's going to go and make right with his father. He doesn't even want to be restored to his former position. He says, I'll just be, just let me be a servant in your, in your home. Okay. I'm not worthy to be your son anymore. Okay. In, uh, in England, in the uh, 16th century after the Reformation, there was a shift from Roman Catholicism to Protestantism. But all the churches in England were Roman Catholic, and they had Roman Catholic priests. And many of them were, uh, some of them were illiterate. Some of them um, would just read the Mass in Latin, even though they didn't speak Latin. And now suddenly the whole, all the churches are, are declared Protestant. So it was a problem. Many of them were not able to preach. They didn't know what to preach. So what some of the bishops did, people like Ridley and Latimer, they wrote a whole lot of sermons, or what they called homilies, that were to be distributed to all the churches and to be read to try and get reformational truths into all these churches. And one of them is called a homily of repentance and of true reconciliation unto God. And it starts off like this. There is nothing that the Holy Ghost does so much labor in all the scriptures to beat into men's heads as repentance. Okay. <laughs> There's nothing in the whole Bible that the Holy Spirit does not try and beat into men's heads but the doctrine of repentance. And that's how the Holy Spirit has to work because we are so hard-hearted. But the fundamental issue, the, the first issue is to repent that's what he does here. He has to repent. And that's a lifestyle. Okay? So don't think, oh, repentance is what you do when you get saved. It's the way that you live. You can't say, no, I turned from sin back then, but I'm not doing it anymore. No, it's a continuous act of turning from sin every day. It's a lifestyle. Putting off and putting on. That's why this is, if you're not a Christian, repent. If you are a Christian, keep repenting. It's for all of us. Even a saint like Augustine, on his deathbed, you know what he said? He asked people, he said, come and write. On his deathbed, as he's dying, write the penitential psalms out for me. Penitential psalms are the psalms of repentance. There's seven of them. He says, I need to, I need to read those. And they said he would sit and read through them with tears rolling down his cheeks. On his deathbed, you say, what, what does he have to repent of? You know, he's done this amazing work and God has used him. But you see, repentance is, never gets old, never goes out of fashion. It's our life, the way that we, we live. Thomas Watson, in his book, The Doctrine of Repentance, he says, uh, defining the nature of true repentance. Let me just put a, a blurb for Thomas Watson. Okay. Uh, he was a, a Puritan, 
And to me, he's the most enjoyable Puritan to read, uh, full of powerful images. So uh, get hold of his books, uh, Banner of Truth. The Doctrine of Repentance uh, is one of them. Um, he talks about the art of divine contentment. You don't have to get that one if you're content. Okay. <laughs> Um, but let me, I can't recommend him highly enough. He says this, repentance is a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled. Okay. That's the key. You need to be humbled. Imagine if he lived like this. Imagine this younger son said, well, it's actually my dad didn't give me enough money. It's his problem. Uh, started to play the victim. Uh, if only he had taught me better when I was growing up, I wouldn't have made these silly decisions. If I'd gone to finance university or whatever, uh, no, he, this is my sin. He owns it. He was humbled. He says that repentance is a spiritual medicine made up of six special ingredients. Number one, sight of sin. The first thing you have to do is see your sin. There can't be any repentance if you don't see your sin. Those of you who've been walking with the Lord longer, don't think you don't have any sin. In fact, that's a sign you're not maturing. The more you mature, the more you become aware of your sin. The more you see that it's still there. And that it's a lot darker and deeper than you, than you realized. But you need to see your sin first. Number two, sorrow for sin. In his doctrine of repentance, he talks often about weeping. Okay. Weeping over your sin. When was the last time any of us wept over our sin? Not just the consequences, but I've, I've sinned against God and uh, it brings me to tears. Okay. Number three, confession of sin, to confess it. Confess it first to the Lord and if you need to go and make right to someone, confess to them. And let me ask you to say, don't just say, I'm sorry, but say, please forgive me for what I did to you. And be fairly specific. Okay. Not, please forgive me for being not so nice. Okay. <laughs> please forgive me for shouting at you like that. Please forgive me for saying those ugly words. Please forgive me for lying to you. And then let me say to the other person, don't just say, don't worry about it. Because I know, I'll, I'll guarantee you the next day you will worry about it. Okay. But think about it and say, I forgive you. Okay. You cannot hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness. I forgive you. Okay. Number four, shame for sin. Okay. We should be ashamed of our sins. Paul says that. This is those things which you are now ashamed of. Okay. Some people's testimonies, it sounds like they're boasting about how bad they were. Okay. Paul says there's some things you don't even talk about in public. They're so shameful. Okay. You should be ashamed. Hatred for sin, number five. Lord, help me to hate this sin. And number six, a turning from sin. He says if any one of these is left out, it loses its virtue. It's not real repentance. Okay. Well, that's a younger son. Wonderful picture. 
So let me, let me encourage you. If that's where you are right now, you're in an ungodly relationship, you've come from Friday night where you got drunk, there's forgiveness. Come to your senses, turn to Christ, be forgiven. Repent. We can see the love of God in the next, next passage where we see the Father. The Son rises up and He goes back home. And we're told while, he, while the Son is still a long way off, you get the idea that every day the Father was looking, looking down the road. Maybe today he'll come back. A longing for his son to return. Again, contrary to the culture, he should have been written off. When he sees him, he felt compassion. We're told many times in the Gospels that Jesus felt compassion. He was moved with compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. He doesn't walk on the other side of the road and spit on the ground. He runs and he embraces him. Again, shameful in that culture for an older man, a patriarch, to run. Okay. You just don't do that. That's dishonorable. Okay. Think if you come from a traditional culture where there is a strong maybe grandfather, patriarch, Sure, you never see him run. Okay. <laughs> He's called up to come and get his food first. <laughs> That's the idea. But he just runs. He doesn't care what anyone thinks. He runs to his son, embraces him, kisses him. Shocking to the culture around him. There would have been a murmur through the crowd, grumbling. You've got to teach him a lesson. You can't do that. They'll take advantage of you. Don't take this as a parenting manual, though, okay? So this, <laughs> this is showing us something about the gospel, okay? But he embraces his son. And his son starts to give his speech that he's prepared. You see that? Verse 21, Father, I've sinned against you, and I'm not alone. He can't even finish it. You know, the whole part where he says, I'm not worthy to be your son, just make me a... He doesn't even get to that. The father just says, put a robe on him, get... Get some, kill a fatted calf, get a ring, put some shoes on him. Do you know that the Lord is more willing to forgive you than you are to even repent? He's filled with compassion. He just looks for the tiniest little spark. A bruised reed he won't break. Smoking flax he won't quench. If he just sees a little spark of repentance, he's there to forgive. Okay. Embraces his son. Gives him all the signs of being a son. Slaves did not have shoes, did not have rings, did not have robes. He gives it to, to him. Kill the fatted calf. They were not like us, where we have meat every day or every second day. But by God's grace, that's an amazing thing. That, what a privilege. Most of history, it's never been like that. This was a, this was a feast, they maybe only had meat a few times a year. Yeah, kill the fatted calf and let's eat. Let's rejoice. My son was lost, but now he is found. And we come to the second son. Most of us remember the first son very well. It's, I think that's, if you say that the parable, we even say the prodigal son. It's not even entitled the, the priggish son or the pharisaical son or the self-righteous son. It's even... Named after the first son. But really, it's about the second one. 
Because that's who he's talking to. Remember verse 1 and 2? The Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees. This is for them. He's telling them, this is what you are like. The older son was in the field, working. Of course he was working. He's the good son. But he comes back home and he hears music and dancing. He doesn't even go in. He's already upset that other people are having fun. Okay. (laughs) There was an incorrect, false view. There is an incorrect and false view of Puritans. The definition of a Puritan was... Uh, someone who has a haunting suspicion that someone somewhere is having fun. Uh, uh, that's not true at all. They read their writings on sport, recreation, sex. They knew how to have fun. They knew how to enjoy God's good gifts. Okay? That's a lie. Christians are not prudes or priggish or self-right. We shouldn't be. Okay? But he won't even go in. He just calls one of the servants. He says, what's going on here? He says to them, your brother's come home and he's alive and well and your dad has uh, killed the fattened calf because he's back safely. Verse 28, we get to see this man's heart. But he was angry and refused to go in. Isn't that amazing? His heart is exposed. Instead of saying, praise the Lord, my brother whom I loved, he's returned and dad will be so happy. He's angry. His heart is full of hatred. He refuses to go in. Now he is acting shamefully. He is dishonoring his father. He's showing his true colors. But look at the father. The father in love comes out again. Shamefully comes out. Again, he should have just said, well, leave him. Don't let him back into my home. But he goes out to him implore his son to come back in. And then the son, the older son, answers his father. He says, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, he doesn't even say my brother. <laughs> you, know, you know how we do that. When the child is naughty, your daughter... <laughs> Your son. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. You see, he also wanted the stuff, just like the other brother. That was his calf that was there. He was waiting for his father to die as well. That's my calf. And you give it to this guy. This rubbish who lives like that, lives like a devil. He wanted the same things as the other son. He just went about it differently. He said, I'll bide my time. I'll be the good person. I'll have the zip-up Bible under my arm. I'll have the tie that I wear to church. I'll hand out tracts. But actually, I just want a good life as well. I don't actually love God. He wanted the same things. And of course, he was the good son. You can imagine in the village, everyone that met him, thank goodness your father has you. (laughs) You're not like that other son. 
Do you have that? You grow up in the church? He's such a good person, you know. Such a nice boy. You start to believe it. You start to think, yeah, sure. Yeah, I am actually. I'm th- Thank you, Lord. I'm not like those other people. <laughs> I'm not like that. When we, when we do sermon, we go over sermons and we talk about preaching as, as elders and some of the other leaders in church. What? One of the things we've realized in South Africa and Johannesburg is this is the biggest problem, actually. Those from more traditional cultures, African culture, Afrikaans culture, this is your problem. You're self-righteous. I'd say white English people are more atheistic and I'm generalizing, but generalizations are often true. Okay. This is our problem. You think you're actually a good person. You think I'm, you tick Christian, you tick the box, you go to church, you put up statuses, praise the Lord, but you live like the devil. You think, but it's okay, because I, I go to church, and it's a mega church, and it's this, and it's that, and it's the next thing, and we do all of these things. We help poor people. But you don't love God. And the moment trial comes, you say, well, why is this happening to me? I've given money. I told you before, one of the things that I remember most from my seminary is my lecturer saying, you're either a briber of God or you're a worshiper of God. Maybe some of you are bribing God. You don't worship him. You say, I'm working all the time for God, and now he's messing up my life. You're not a worshiper. A worshiper says, I deserve hell. Any kindness is a blessing, is a mercy. And God is so kind to me, I deserve infinitely worse. And this is just for a short period that I will suffer. If you're a child of God, this is your hell. This is as bad as it gets. Some of the martyrs, when they were busy being burned to death, you know what the one said to the other? Don't worry, son. Tonight we will feast with Jesus. Okay? That's how it is. It's a short life. It's a vapor. And there's suffering. Promised. Okay? It's not even in the fine print. It's up front. Okay? You will suffer. There it is. But it's for, for a season. And then eternity with the Lord. Okay. But if you say, no, I'll be a religious person, I'll be a good person, so I can get a better life, you're using God like this guy. That's what the Pharisees were like. And you might be a Pharisee. Jesus says, Matthew 23, he shows us. So examine your heart. Now let me just say again, all of us have a little Pharisee somewhere. Okay. We all have those we look down on. We all have a certain standard that like, yeah, those people, that we look down on. Okay? Every single one of us. doesn't matter. You might be the most laid-back person, but there will be certain things where you are self-righteous, okay? where you look down on others. But you might be a Pharisee, verse 5 of Matthew 23, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. If you want everyone to, to see you, you're more worried what other people, that other people think you're holy than whether you're actually holy. Okay. Your actual biggest concern is what other, that other people think highly of you. Not whether God thinks highly of you. That's the heart of a Pharisee. 
Verse 16, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, if you make an oath by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. See, what this is, the Pharisees were very clever at making loopholes in the law. Okay, We don't have time to go into that. But if you make loopholes for your own sin, you know what I mean. When you sin, it's understandable. When other people sin, it's evil and there is no grace. Just a silly example. When other people are late, they're useless and irresponsible and pathetic. And when you're late, no. Uh, traffic and this happened and that happened. You justified. That's a silly example. But you do it with moral things as well. You apply it to other things. You justify your sin. That's what the Pharisees did. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which appear, outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones. So you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. What goes on in your heart? What goes on in secret? What goes on when church people are not around? But then you say, but I do lots of good things as well. True repentance, you'll repent even of the good things you do. okay? Because you'll say that my heart was not even right in those good things. I was doing it to be seen by others. Repent even of the good things you do. The other thing with the Pharisee is, what they really want is for other people to get nailed in the preaching of God's word. Okay. You see that the Pharisees were upset. They felt that Jesus was antinomian, anti-law. He was not. Okay. He was not antinomian at all. They said, well, he's not hard enough on tax collectors and sinners. They said, he needs to be harder. He needs to be firm with those people. But Jesus was very firm, but with them as well. They didn't like that. And that's the heart of a Pharisee. You have a lot to say about preaching needs to be harder for those people. You need to nail those people in the culture. But when you are challenged on your hypocrisy and your self-righteousness and your condescension of others, you don't like that. All of us should say, I want faithful preaching and I want it to hit my heart. I don't come to church so other people can be preached at. I want to receive I come to church, so Lord, you'll speak to me, expose the sin in my life, expose the hypocrisy in my life. Well, the story ends again with the father being so gracious. Verse 31. He said to him, son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And then the story ends. And... Uh, uh, those who, who study literary genre and poetry and Hebrew writing and storytelling tell us the story is left hanging. It's, it's missing a section. Okay? There's no denouement. It's no like conclusion, bringing it together. Okay? There should be either, well, the sun stormed off or the sun fell on his knees crying and then it closes, but it's left left hanging one pastor said this 
which I thought was quite, quite powerful. He said, the next account is the older son picked up a stick and beat his father to death. Okay. And what he was talking about is, what did these Pharisees do a short time later? They crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. They pushed, they sought, how could they get rid of him? They rejected God totally. They refused to humble themselves. But let me just say, that's not entirely true because there's, there's other Pharisees who did repent, isn't that right? Nicodemus. What about Paul? Paul was a Pharisee. The greatest Christian that we know of was a self-righteous Pharisee, a hypocrite. So, it does seem that it's really, really hard for self-righteous people to repent. Because you think you're okay. And you've convoluted it with religion and religiosity and the Bible and all of these things. And so you have a sort of an armament around it. But let let me... Challenge you. No, there is hope. Okay. Humble yourself. Realize who you are, actually. Realize your sin and ugliness. It's the most ugly thing. Self-righteousness. Looking down on others. Repent of that. And there is forgiveness. There is grace. So wherever you and I find ourselves, and often it shifts from day to day, the answer is repent. Okay. Repent. See your sin. Acknowledge it. Confess it. Sorrow over it. Turn from it, whether it's lasciviousness, licentiousness, lust, or self-righteousness, hypocrisy. Repent of it and know the full and free forgiveness. You'll see that in all of these stories, these parables, nobody is saved by works. We're not saved by works. It's a gift. Come and receive it every day. Not that a Christian has to get re-saved every day, but every day I need Christ. Every day I'm, I'm satisfied in him, but I want more of him. Okay. So keep coming to him. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you so much for this parable, the greatest of all parables, the most beautiful of all parables. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are a faithful older brother, that you didn't leave us in a far country, that you came and sought us, you found us, delivered us from sin and darkness. It doesn't matter where we find ourselves on the spectrum, gross immorality or ugly secret sins, there is forgiveness. All of us need to repent and put our trust in you. May we know your free and full forgiveness. Please, Holy Spirit, work in all of our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen.